Hey everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast, and we uh, just talked in a very recent episode um, about Mao, uh, Mao Zedong, and the CCP. Uh, I read through the majority of one of his speeches that he gave in 1957 uh, on handling the on the correct handling of the contradictions of the people among the people, or something like this. Um, that's approximately the title. And since we're kind of looking at the Maoist circumstance, and I wanted to impress upon you with that podcast that what we're seeing is very familiar, I now want to turn and do another episode. So in some sense, this episode's a little bit of a follow-up to the previous Mao episode. I would encourage you, if um, you want to get the full experience of this, if this will be an episode that can stand on its own, no problem. But if you want to get the full experience of what's being communicated, I think, in this episode, uh, I think it would behoove you to take the time, which is not a trivial ask. I'm asking for about six hours of your time before whatever this turns out to be, uh, to go listen to the Mao podcast that I did recently and a another recent New Discourses podcast episode um, called Surviving a Modern Struggle Session, um, where I read from Robert J. Lifton's book, Thought Reform on the Psychology of Totalism, A Study of Brainwashing in China. And in particular, I read through something, I think it's the fifth chapter, through a significant portion of that to contextualize what a struggle session is. And for what it's worth, I've heard that that podcast has been very helpful for people. So now I want to return to Lifton and look at the Mao situation through the other end of the lens, if you will. So we read this this speech by Mao from 57. He's on the eve of launching what gets called the Great Leap, or sometimes the Great Leap Forward, which is essentially his generation or his his regime's attempt at the Great Reset. Uh, it was a disaster, but he's got the sales pitch, and it's eerie how well it connects to what we're dealing with. Um, and now we're going to turn it around, and we're going to look at some of the more conclusion-based or conclusive uh, points that Lifton makes near the end of his book. Uh, Again, the title of that book is Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And I encourage you to remember that thought reform is the translation that Lifton is giving for the Chinese term Xi Nao, which means brainwash. And so he's talking about the brainwashing methods what Mao was referring to in the criticism and struggle part of what he called his unity criticism, unity formula for transforming a polity, uh, create a desire for unity, make people want to fit in, make them want to join the cult, bring them in, affirm them, and then as they get deeper in, start to do criticism and struggle, what he calls the democratic method of persuasion, and as they become more committed, lead them into study and or return to the desire for unity uh, within the cult now. And so um, this is, in essence, the formula behind the brainwashing program that Lifton was documenting from Hong Kong uh, in the early 1950s. So he's to remind you of the setting, if you haven't listened to the Struggle Session podcast or some of the other ones where I've talked about Lifton recently, um, Lifton was in Hong Kong, he was actually there for business for other reasons, and he started to find out about these people coming in. He's a psychologist. He starts to find out about these people coming in fresh off the boat from exile from China after being released from Mao's 
brainwashing prisons in the early 1950s. And he sets up camp for an extra year and a half in Hong Kong and starts interviewing these people, um, sometimes days after they get off the exile ship that sent them to Hong Kong, got them out of mainland China, and uh, interviews them almost immediately and created a very comprehensive uh, theory of thought reform, brainwashing, uh, and cult uh, induction, really. And so I'm not going to preamble this any longer. I'm just going to jump in. Chapter 22, Ideological Totalism. I'm going to give you this. And again, again, the, the, the similarities to what we are experiencing are so obvious as to be uncomfortable. And as we go, I'll draw them out. But this is a very important chapter. In fact, if you only had time to read a handful of things, if you get a hold of this book, I would encourage you to read that fifth chapter or whichever it is where he outlines the 12 steps of thought reform. Then I would encourage you to read this chapter and the next uh, if you only have time for three. If you have time for a few more, um, the entire last part, which is four chapters or something like that, and maybe even the two chapters before the last part are, are also worth reading. So like the last five or six chapters of the book. Um, if you have lots of time to read all 525 pages, be my guest. It's an, it's an excellent book. So chapter 22, Ideological Totalism. He says, thought reform has a psychological momentum of its own, a self-perpetuating energy not always bound by the interests of the program's directors. So immediately we get this sense of the woke, right? So we know that there are people kind of directing this sort of, it's very decentralized. It's not got the same hierarchical central command structure that mounted. But the idea of psychologically manipulating and brainwashing people naturally has its own self-perpetuating energy that's not connected to necessarily directly to um, the people that keep it in the on track. In other words, it's almost like the people that are in the inner circle of the cult lay the tracks, but the the drive that keeps the thought reform going, the cult initiation and deepening going. Uh, that seems to have almost its own, it's like the train has its own engine. He says, when we inquire into the sources of this momentum, we come upon a complete set of psychological themes, which may be grouped under the general heading ideological totalism. So those are a couple big words. We have the idea of ideology as a grand mythology that explains why society is structured the way that it is uh, with a vision toward the future. And totalism is this idea that uh, it's going to touch and inf infuse into every single aspect of life and being. So ideological totalism means that this ideology, in this case, Maoist communism, it could be woke communism in our day, which I think there's not a lot of daylight between those, except in terms of the very specific aspects going after race and gender and sex and sexuality in very American or very Western ways, as opposed to going after kind of more economic and material identity categories constructed by Mao. But otherwise, there's very little daylight in between these. Uh, the idea is that that's going to touch upon and inform every aspect of your experience in life as you get pulled into this cult. Or if you're just under its dominion, it will touch every aspect. You know, it'll be at the ball game. It'll be in the math lesson. It'll be in all the school lessons, all the curriculum. 
It'll be uh, on television. It'll be in entertainment. It'll be in the news. It'll be just what people are doing. It'll be in food. It'll be in everything. It's totalizing. It's taking over everything. And he says, by this ungainly phrase, I mean to suggest the coming together of immoderate ideology with equally immoderate individual character traits, an extremist meeting ground between people and ideas. In discussing tendencies toward individual totalism within my subjects, I made it clear that these were a matter of degree and that some potential of, uh, sorry, some potential for this form of all or nothing emotional alignment exists within everyone. Similarly, any ideology, that is, any set of emotionally charged convictions about man and his relationship to the natural or supernatural world, may be carried by its adherents in a totalistic direction. But this is most likely to occur with those ideologies which are most sweeping in their content and most ambitious or messianic in their claims, whether religious, political, or scientific. And where totalism exists, a religion, a political movement, or even a scientific organization becomes little more than an exclusive cult. Now, that should give you some chills at the moment, especially when you hear the scientific organization. You have heard in my podcast series about the strange death of the university that our universities have allowed a great deal of this totalism in. In fact, they are some of the main purveyors of the totalism. And where totalism exists, the institution becomes little more than an exclusive cult. But that applies when it gets let into religions. That applies when it gets led into political movements or even a scientific organization, not just a university, but say the CDC or the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health or something of that kind, or the American Heart Association or the American Medical Association, the American Geophysical Union. We could go on and on. Virtually every American Library Association, virtually every professional organization of that kind has been captured by this totalizing ideology. And I'll just read the punchline again, where totalism exists, the institution becomes little more than an exclusive cult. This is coming from one of the biggest experts in cults and cult thinking and cult dynamics and cult uh, indoctrination that's ever written on the subject. A discussion of what is most central in the thought reform environment can thus lead us to a more general consideration of the psychology of human zealotry. For an identifying on the basis of this study of thought reform, features common to all expressions of ideological totalism, I wish to suggest a set of criteria against which any environment may be judged, a basis for answering the ever-recurring question, isn't this just like brainwashing? These criteria consist of eight psychological themes which are predominant within the social field of the thought reform milieu. Each has a totalistic quality, each depends on an equally absolute philosophical assumption, and each mobilizes certain individual emotional tendencies, mostly of a polarizing nature. Psychological theme philosophical rationale, and polarized individual tendencies are interdependent. They require, rather than directly cause, each other. In combination, they create an atmosphere which may temporarily energize or exhilarate, but which at the same time poses the gravest of human threats. 
And I just want to re-impress upon you that what he is talking about is where he's drawing these conclusions before we proceed is from dealing with people who's just spent three to five years in many cases uh, directly under the brainwashing techniques, frequently in prisons, sometimes outside of them in schools, in the Chinese communist milieu under Mao in the 1950s, in the period of great success that Mao was describing leading up to his grandiose speech on February 27, 1957, about handling contradictions among the people. And so the first of the eight uh, psychological themes that Lifton gives us is, and I'll probably lose count because they're not numbered in the book, is milieu control. Okay, that's milieu or however the French you're going to pronounce it. Milieu control. You're going to control the environment around somebody. And in fact, totally, because it's totalizing to install totalitarianism. Total, total, total for a reason. And he says the most basic feature of the thought reform environment, the psychological current upon which all else demands is the control of human communication. So let's pause to think of some major modes of human communication before we continue. The media, entertainment, education and teaching, religion, preaching, dialogue between one another, the words that we use, what the words mean, the language that we use, social media, whether or not that's censored. You have kind of a picture in your head now. The most basic feature of the thought reform environment, the psychological current upon which all else depends is the control of human communication. Through this milieu control, the totalist environment seeks to establish domain over not only the individual's communication with the outside, all that he sees and hears, reads and writes, experiences and expresses, but also in its penetration of his inner life over what we may speak of as his communication with himself. So they want to make you feel bad about having wrong thoughts, right? It creates an atmosphere uncomfortably reminiscent of George Orwell's 1984, but with one important difference. Orwell, as a Westerner, envisioned milieu control accomplished by a mechanical device, the two-way telescreen. We call them black mirrors today or cell phones. The Chinese, although they utilize whatever mechanical means they have at their disposal, achieve control of greater psychological depth through a human recording and transmitting apparatus. It is probably fair to say that the Chinese communist prison and revolutionary university produce about as thoroughly controlled a group environment as has ever existed. Meanwhile, the American university system is saying, hold my beer, right? The milieu control exerted over the broader social environment of communist China, while considerably less intense, is in its own way unrivaled in its combination of extensiveness and depth. It is, in fact, one of the distinguishing features of Chinese communist practice. So before we get too far away from it, because COVID is sort of a thing we're looking at sort of in the... It's in this weird zombie phase. It's in the rearview mirror, but it's not allowed to be in the rearview mirror all the way. But don't forget how severely how acutely you were aware that if you said the wrong things on YouTube, if you said the wrong things on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., that you were 
going to get banned. That you were going to be shut up and cast into the dungeon of truth so you could go rumble somewhere else or whatever else. That's milieu control. That's just a social media environment. We had that with many woke topics as well, of course. Such milieu control never succeeds in becoming absolute. That's the point he makes. When we think about this milieu control on social media, even to this day, not as much on Twitter as it was before, think about the trans issue. You're guaranteed, you were guaranteed for saying very basic, simple things like women are not men. You could be banned for life from social media for statements of that kind. Such milieu control never succeeds in becoming absolute, and its own human apparatus can, when permeated by outside information, become subject to discordant noise beyond that of any mechanical apparatus. To totalist administrators, however, such occurrences are no more than evidences of incorrect use of the apparatus, for they look upon milieu control as just and necessary policy. Doesn't that sound like the Justifications we hear for misinformation and disinformation campaigns, or anti-those campaigns, to shut them down. They look upon milieu control as a just and necessary policy, one which need not be kept secret. Thought reform participants may be in doubt as to who is telling what to whom, but the fact that extensive information about everyone is being conveyed to the authorities is always known. At the center of this self-justification is their assumption of omniscience. Their conviction that reality is their exclusive possession. Having, ex- By the way, that's a trait of a Gnostic cult being in charge. Having experienced the impact of what they consider to be an ultimate truth, mm-hmm, and having the need to dispel any possible inner doubts of their own, they consider it their duty to create an environment containing no more and no less than this, quote, truth. Doesn't that send a chill up your spine when you start to realize what's been going on in this country for the past few years, on social media in particular, through media and entertainment more broadly, in the schools, what's allowed to be taught and what's not allowed to be taught, what will get you kicked off of social media, what can and cannot be on television. They consider it their duty to create an environment containing no more and no less than this, quote, truth, which is the gnosis of the cult because it's a Gnostic cult, as we keep discussing. In order to be the engineers of the human soul, they must first bring it under full observational control. Now, let me go back to a quote here from Mao on that, and I want to get the exact wording, so soul is the key word to look up. He says He's talking about what to do with intellectuals. He says, both students and intellectuals, this was Mao, remember, both students and intellectuals should study hard. In addition to the study of their specialized subjects, they must make progress ideologically and politically, which means they should study Marxism, current events, and politics. By the way, that's exactly what you're meant to study when you enter the study portion after the struggle and criticism in the prison is lifting documents throughout this book, right? When you graduate from uh, Dojang, which is the the, the s- struggle, and you get put into the, the Shueishi study category, that's what you studied, Marxism, current event, and politics. And you were constantly in conversations with one another in the prison cells, 
discussing those issues, helping, so to speak, each other, and viciously criticizing and struggling people when they get them wrong. But that's not what I wanted to, to get to. They must make progress ideologically and politically, which means they should study Marxism, current events, and politics. And then Mao says, Mao Zedong says, quote, and I perfectly quote, reading from him word for word, not to have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. Okay, one more time. Not to have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. So we're, you're keeping up here, right? So what did, what did Lifton just say? In order to be engineers of the human soul, they must first bring it under full observational control. Feel comfortable on your cell phone. Many things happen psychologically to one exposed to Malu control. The most basic is the disruption of balance between self and outside world. Pressured toward a merger of internal and external milieu, the individual encounters a profound threat to his personal autonomy. He is deprived of the combination of external information and internal, or sorry, and inner reflection, which anyone requires to test the realities of his environment and maintain a measure of identity separate from it. Instead, he is called upon to make an absolute polarization of the real, the prevailing ideology, and the unreal, everything else. Students of Gnosticism will feel the Manichaean elements kind of emerging here, but in a political context and sense rather than in the strict spiritual sense of, the, of, of Manny's hermetic Gnostic cult. To the extent that he does this, he undergoes personal closure, which frees him from man's incessant struggle with the elusive subtleties of truth. He may even share his environment's sense of omniscience and assume a God's eye view of the universe, but he is likely instead to feel himself victimized by the God's eye view of his environment's controllers. So what Lifton's describing there is that this Total Malu control gives into kind of a feeling of letting go that you still don't feel like you really let go, but submitting to the authority, which might have very positive effects for you and make you heady with power and megalomaniacal, or it may leave you feeling paranoid, like you're being spied upon all the time. At this point, he says, he is subject to the hostility of suffocation of which we have already spoken, the resentful awareness that his strivings toward new information, independent judgment, and self-expression are being thwarted. If his intelligence and sensibilities carry him toward realities outside of the closed ideological system, he may resist these as not fully legitimate. Did you get that? Once you start to step into the cult, and once it starts to transform you because you're in that total milieu control, imagine being a leftist. You're not allowed to hold a single conservative opinion. You're not allowed to give a whiff of maybe having one single opinion that might be branded conservative, lest you lose your social circle, your friends, possibly your, uh, your job, your professional contacts, your opportunities. That's milieu control as well. And if your intelligence and sensibilities carry you toward real realities outside of the closed ideological system, you may resist these as not fully legitimate because you have to stay in the cult. The cult is brainwashing you to see the world through the cult lens. You are becoming what Yuri Beznamov called demoralized. 
you are unable to assess truth any longer. You can only see facts in the world through the lens of the cult, which has a psychological, emotional, moral, social grip over you. Maybe if you've been in the stage of study, intellectual grip over you so that you will do everything that human brains do to make sense of the world, to make sense of it in terms of the cult, which it's too threatening to challenge or abandon. And he says, this is the case until the Malu control is sufficiently diminished for him to share these realities with others. So a lot of times people ask, is there hope? Of course there's hope. How? You have to break people out of the cult. You break them out of the Malu control. You show them that there's life outside of the cult. You show them that it's possible to open up and talk and not get canceled or destroyed, or the people canceling you and destroying you weren't your friends really anyway. They were cult members who were keeping you trapped. You show them that, and they can distance themselves from the Malu control. And he says, this is the case until the Malu control is sufficiently diminished for him to share these realities with others. He is in either case profoundly hampered in the perpetual human quest for what is true, good, and relevant in the world around him and within himself. So milieu control is the first characteristic of a cult environment. I don't think that any of us can deny that this is a major feature of how we've been having to live life for a long time, at least three or four years, arguably at least since 2015 in many regards, when the culture war, so to speak, really kicked off. Some of you will say, with political correctness, back to the 90s. Some of you will say longer. But it's been kind of an incur- this is the so-called boiling frog of Malu control. It's been slowly increasing to the point where, for the last few years, it was a legitimate threat to your livelihood, a legitimate threat to your ability to be fit into your community, your church, a legitimate threat to your friends and family in many cases. Okay, so the second characteristic he gives is mystical manipulation. Now, I think that this is very important because I keep talking about this in terms of a Gnostic cult, and Gnosis is um, often a belief that you have insight on mystical knowledge that other people don't know. These are mystical, esoteric religions, Gnosticism, Hermeticism of the various kind, that got cobbled into communism. What does Lifton tell us about mystical manipulation? Well, it's a power game, of course, but he says the inevitable next step after Milu control is extensive personal manipulation. I mean, I've been doing this for a while, right? I've been telling you for a while is what I mean. What do they do? If you go after the woke or the woke come after you, what do they do? First, they tell you you're dumb, that you don't have intellectual authority to stand on your own understanding of the world, right? That's manipulation. That's personal manipulation of your ability to grasp reality. Sometimes we call it gaslighting. Then they'll tell you that you're evil. You're evil. You're absolutely evil if you believe these things. You're a racist. You're a transphobe. You're a bigot. You're the worst kind of person. That's emotional blackmail. So we're dealing with gaslighting, emotional blackmail. And then finally, speaking of gaslighting, um, also trying to induce an inferiority complex, but also... uh, in terms of gaslighting, psychological control. You're crazy. That's not happening. Critical race theory isn't in schools. Of course it's not in schools. Kimberly Crenshaw on Joy Reid a year ago, year and a half ago, summer of uh, 21, saying, don't you think if critical race theory is in schools, I would know it? She says this. She, says, she doesn't directly say it's not in schools. She says, don't you think if it were in schools, I would know it? And implies to Joy Reid that it's obviously not in schools. We want everybody in America who isn't an NPC, knew it was in schools, right? What did she say on Joy Reid this week? 
literally the week I'm recording this, the first week of February 2023. What does she say? 18 or 19 months later. She talks about how it's necessary for critical race theory to be in schools. Oh, it's a graduate level program. You're crazy if you think we're teaching that. Now she says not only that it's necessary, but it has to come with queer theory and intersectionality and the whole raft of the identity politics. So they try to tell you that you're crazy, that the things you're seeing and experiencing aren't really happening. That's another form of manipulation. That's gaslighting. Extensive personal manipulation, intellectual, psychological, and moral manipulation, blackmail, extortion, belittling, etc. He says this manipulation assumes a no-holds-barred character and uses every possible device at the Milou's command, no matter how bizarre or painful. Initiated from above, it seeks to provoke specific patterns of behavior and emotion in such a way that these will appear to have arisen spontaneously from within the environment. This element of planned spontaneity, like flash mobbing, all of a sudden those things that happen to you, those angry Twitter storms that you get subjected to, pylons or whatever, struggle sessions online. This element of planned spontaneity, directed as it is by an uh, ostensibly omniscient group, must assume for the manipulated a near mystical quality. You put out a tweet, you don't know what in the world happened, go back and listen to my struggle session podcast. But now you have thousands of people yelling at you, calling you names, saying you're stupid, posting pictures, distorted pictures of you, humiliating you, and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people liking them all of a sudden out of nowhere. This goes on for two or three days. How in the world did they get a hold of it? How are so many people, how is it going so viral, but only in a negative way? This element of planned spontaneity directed as it is by an ostensibly omniscient group must assume for the manipulated, that's you, a near mystical quality. Ideological totalists do not pursue this approach solely for the purpose of maintaining a sense of power over others. Rather, they are impelled by a special kind of mystique, which not only justifies such manipulations, but makes them mandatory. See, that's how they are treated in the cult. That's how they got hazed through criticism and struggle into the cult. So that's what they must do to you, to initiate you as well. Included in this mystique is a sense of, quote, higher purpose, of having, quote, directly perceived some imminent law of social development. Doesn't that sound like Gnosticism in social politics? It is. And of becoming themselves the vanguard of this development. In other words, they're adepts in the cult, the Gnostic cult. They are no longer merely initiates, although some of them might be. They've seen the light, they've adopted the consciousness, and they've begun to study and become adept in it, and they see themselves as the vanguard, serving a, quote, higher purpose, in which they, quote, directly perceived some imminent law of social development. By thus becoming the instruments of their own mystique, they create a mystical aura around the manipulating institutions. He lists the party, the government, the organization. We could say the social media environment, the community standards, the school, the institution. They are the agents, quote, chosen, again, religious, by history, by God, or by some other supernatural force to carry out the, quote, mystical imperative, the pursuit of which must supersede all considerations of decency or immediate human welfare. Those pylons you experience on social media are not organic. Very rarely. They are a 
designed operation to create this mystical manipulation over you to make you think that masses and masses and masses of people dislike you, see how stupid you are or evil you were or short-sighted you were or humiliating you were or embarrassing you were or crazy you were. In the pursuit of that, which is a higher purpose, touching upon a directly perceived imminent law of social development, the pursuit of which must supersede all considerations of decency or of immediate human welfare. What we're looking at then is the practice of a religious ritual, an ecstatic ritual. The people participating in this are going through the same kind of thing as in any, you know, whether it's what you could picture another religion, chanting or dancing or, you know, hypnotizing themselves around a fire or whatever it happens to be. And entering into a state of, of religious ecstasy. And but they get it here from bullying people. The pursuit of which must supersede all considerations of decency or of immediate human welfare. Similarly, any thought or action which questions the higher purpose is considered to be stimulated by a lower purpose. To be backward, selfish, and petty in the face of the great overriding mission. How familiar is this? Let me just put the point from the previous podcast back on you. We are going through a Maoist cultural revolution in the United States with American characteristics. That's what's happening. This same mystical imperative produces the apparent extremes of idealism and cynicism which occur in connection with the manipulations of any totalist environment. Even those actions which seem cynical in the extreme can be seen as having ultimate relationship to the, quote, higher purpose. Like deconstruction, to tear down systems of power. Is this making sense? Is this making sense? We're dealing with a gigantic cult, possibly the largest cult startup in human history. And it is not just a cult, but it is a power-hungry, destructive cult in which the participants believe they have perceived a higher truth and that they are on a holy mission to beat it into everybody. They're controlling the milieu, and they use the contents of the milieu control to do this mystical manipulation, and they feel completely justified in manipulating you through what seems like mystical power. At the level of the individual person, the psychological responses to this manipulative approach revolve about the basic polarity of trust and mistrust, one is asked to accept these manipulations on a basis of ultimate trust or faith. Quote, like a child in the arms of its mother, as Father Luca, one of the abused um, Westerners, uh, a priest from Europe, accurately perceived. He who trusts in this degree can experience the manipulations within the idiom of the mystique behind them. That is, he may welcome their mysteriousness, find pleasure in their pain, and feel them to be necessary for the fulfillment of the, quote, higher purpose, which he endorses as his own. That means you're adopting the, the, the gnosis, by the way, the higher purpose. Knowledge of the higher purpose is the, and how it's supposed to come about is the gnosis here. They call it socialism under Marxist theory. We call it equity or something like that now. But such elemental trust is difficult to maintain, and even the strongest can be dissipated by constant manipulation. So if you feel like you're going crazy or under a lot of stress, there's a reason. Don't 
hold yourself, don't beat yourself up over it. Don't hold yourself to an unfair account. This isn't easy. This isn't easy for anybody. Earlier in the book, one of the outstanding features Lifton points out about the thought control or thought reform and brainwashing process is that nobody put through it comes out unchanged. Everybody's psychology is damaged, which you definitely need to be considering when you send your kids to school. Or like I get asked all the time, should I send my child to college? These are hard questions, but you need to understand you're sending them to a a, a thought reform institution. Nobody touched by this comes out unchanged. If you aren't really certain that the foundation you have is strong enough and that the person you're sending into it uh, can deal with that or cope with it, you need to think very carefully. When trust gives away to mistrust, Lifton tells us, or when trust has never existed, the higher purpose cannot serve as an adequate emotional sustenance. The individual then responds to the manipulations through developing what I shall call the psychology of the pawn, the NPC, right? Feeling himself unable to escape from forces more powerful than himself, he subordinates everything to adapting himself to them. He becomes sensitive to all kinds of cues, expert at anticipating environmental pressures, and skillful in riding them in such a way that his psychological energies merge with the tide rather than turn painfully against himself. This requires that he participate actively in the manipulation of others, as well as in the endless rounds of betrayal and self-betrayals which are required. But whatever his purpose, whether he is cheerful in the face of being manipulated, deeply resentful, or feels a combination of both, he has been deprived of the opportunity to exercise his capacity for self-expression and independent action. He's being pulled into the cult. Third, Lifting gives us the demand for purity. Of course, of course, purity as defined by the cult doctrine, purity in the theory and praxis of the cult. And he says, in this thought reform milieu, as in all situations of ideological totalism, the experiential world is sharply divided into the pure and the impure, into the absolutely good and the absolutely evil. So again, I point you toward the Gnostic and Hermetic cult of Mani, Manichaeanism. The good and the pure are, of course, those ideas, feelings, and actions which are consistent with the totalist ideology and policy. Anything else is apt to be relegated to the bad and the impure. Nothing human is immune from the flood of stern moral judgments. All, quote, taints and, quote, poisons which contribute to the existing state of impurity must be searched out and eliminated. The philosophical assumption underlying this demand is that absolute purity, the, quote, good communist or the ideal communist state, is attainable, that we can achieve justice in our day, that we can be perfectly sustainable in our behavior and action. The philosophical assumption underlying this demand is that absolute purity is attainable, and that anything done to anyone in the name of this purity is ultimately moral. So why are you a good person when you struggle your neighbor over systemic racism? Because you're pushing them toward that absolute purity and yourself right? Teacher-learner dialectic of Freire says you're both teaching and learning at the same time. So you're pushing yourself and your neighbor toward absolute purity and therefore psychological abuse and manipulation of your neighbor or say a child in a school 
is moral. In actual practice, however, no one and no state is really expected to achieve such perfection, nor can this paradox be dismissed as merely a means of establishing a high standard to which all can aspire. Let's make that real clear. He's saying this isn't that you're holding a standard for people to live up to. It's different than that. Thought reform, he says, bears witness to its more malignant consequences. For by defining and manipulating the criteria of purity and then by conducting an all-out war upon impurity, the ideological totalists create a narrow world of guilt and shame. This is perpetuated by an ethos of continuous reform, a demand that one strive permanently and painfully for something which not only does not exist but is in fact alien to the human condition. Let's back up to what Robin D'Angelo said about anti-racism, shall we? It is a lifelong, ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism, and no one is ever done. You don't become an anti-racist and thus have non-racist as part of your being. You're always a racist in recovery. Do you see it? Do you see it? At the level of the relationship between individual and environment, the demand for purity creates what we may term a guilty milieu and a shaming milieu. Imagine if you start to transition or head that way toward transition, and then you start to have thoughts like doubts. Well, those are guilty thoughts. That's going against the purity of the cult. That's shameful of you, right? So you can't have those thoughts. And other people can't give you those thoughts. And you have to cut away from people like, say, your mom, who might bring those thoughts to you. Because at the level of the relationship between individual and environment, the gender-affirming care environment is the totalizing environment. In this case, the demand for purity creates what we may term a guilty milieu and a shaming milieu. Since each man's impurities are deemed So your internalized transphobia, your internalized homophobia, your internalized racism, whatever. Since each man's impurities are deemed sinful and potentially harmful to himself and to others, he is, so to speak, expected to expect punishment, which results in a relationship of guilt with his environment. By the way, at this point, you're psychologically punishing yourself, so it's a self-fulfilling expectation of being expecting to be punished. Similarly, when he fails to meet the prevailing standards in casting out such impurities, can't get rid of all your doubts, can't get rid of all your concerns, he is expected to expect humiliation and ostracism, thus establishing a relationship of shame with his milieu. That's your DEI training in a nutshell right there, right? We're going to deal with your racism. We're going to bring it up. We're going to talk about it. We're going to get it out. We're going to become anti-racists. And when you fail to meet the prevailing standards and casting out, which are which is hard, not possible. It's a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process and no one has ever done. Literally, those are the words Robin D'Angelo uses to describe it. For anti-racism, it fits to all the other pieces. It doesn't matter which aspect of intersectional thought. When you fail to meet the prevailing standards and casting out such impurities, you are expected to expect humiliation and ostracism thus establishing a relationship of shame with your milieu. That's exactly what they do. There are entire business models, as we know, of people who go around to white women, primarily suburban liberal wine moms, 
and guilt them into crying about racism or transphobia or whatever, they sell that as a product and people buy it. Because what they're actually buying is their participation in this puritanical cycle, which gives them a feeling, even though they've been shamed and, and humiliated and made to feel guilt, even though, and then of course the actors say that's not the point, because that's not the point, and that's not actually what they're selling. What they're actually selling is a pathway to feel those things so you can feel the spiritual absolution that comes with that when the cult gives you a pat on the head under this demand for purity. In fact, what does Lifton tell us? Moreover, the sense of guilt and the sense of shame become highly valued. They are preferred forms of communication, objects of public competition, and the bases for eventual bonds between the individual and his totalist accusers. That's the product they're selling. That's the product that drives gender-affirming care. That's the product that bends these poor mothers into becoming Munchausen mamas, Transhausen mamas, that are transitioning their kids. The sense of guilt and the sense of shame become highly valued. They are preferred forms of communication, objects of public competition, and the basis for eventual bonds between the individual and his totalist accusers. Do you hear it? Do you see it? This is what's happening. This is cult. This is a cult. One may attempt to simulate them for a while, but the subterfuge is likely to be detected, and it's safer, as Miss Darrow, another one of his characters, found, to experience them genuinely. Now, I'll pause just kind of for a moment and point back to that religious absolution, that moral absolution, that drive to be accepted by the people who are abusing you that is not mentioned here. Why it's so highly valued in the person receiving the abuse is because you get torn down, you become very emotionally vulnerable, and then by being a good person in the cult doctrine, you get affirmation finally. You get recognized as a good person. As the good person, you doubt you actually are. And so the cult is creating a vulnerability to affirmation cycle that drives you deeper and deeper and deeper into the into the cult because every single time you get a hit of I knew I was worthless but now I feel redeemed I knew I was worthless and now I feel redeemed people vary greatly in their susceptibilities to guilt and shame as my subjects illustrated Lifton tells us depending on patterns developed early in life but since guilt and shame are basic to human existence this variation can be no more than a matter of degree this is why it hits everybody each person is made vulnerable through his profound inner sensibilities to his own limitations and to his unfulfilled potential in other words, each is made vulnerable through his existential guilt. Since ideological totalists become the ultimate judges of good and evil within their world, because they're Gnostics, by the way, they are able to use these universal tendencies toward guilt and shame as emotional levers for their controlling and manipulative influences. They become the arbiters of existential guilt, authorities without limit in dealing with others' limitations. And their power is nowhere more evident than, they're in their, than in their capacity to, quote, forgive. We always say wokeness has no forgiveness. It has entire cycles of affirmation and acceptance when people start to do the work. It's just always channeled into a, you get off the hook, you might even get a pat on the butt when you do the thing we want you to do. 
in the cult. Be an activist. Take up a sign. March with us. We're going to celebrate you. Come to the club after school. Worried about your gender? Come to the GSA. We're going to love bomb you. We're going to love you for you. It's definitely there. We're going to forgive you for having a having all these negative thoughts about your bad identity because we're going to affirm you in this other good identity. It's all there. The individual thus comes to apply the same totalist polarization of good and evil to his, again, Manichaean Gnosticism, same totalist polarization of good and evil to his judgments of his own character. He tends to imbue certain aspects of himself with excessive virtue, like maybe his open-mindedness or his progressiveness or his unwillingness to espouse a single conservative thought and condemn even more excessively other personal qualities, all according to their ideological standing. You must absolutely never, ever, ever show a whiff of a thought that somebody in the progressive movement will brand conservative. Because then you're going to judge yourself, and you're going to enter the guilt and shame spiral. He must also look upon his impurities as originating from outside influences, that is, from the ever-threatening world beyond the closed totalist ken. See, the woke aren't the ones you bear bad influences, it's your parents. The teachers have to protect the kids from their parents because what if the parents aren't affirming of their new gender identity? Right? It's outside. Therefore, one of his best ways to relieve himself of some of his burden of guilt is to denounce continuously and hostily these same outside influences. The more guilty he feels, the greater his hatred, the more threatening they seem. In this manner, the universal psychological tendency toward projection is nourished and institutionalized, leading to mass hatreds, purges of heretics, and to political and religious holy wars. Moreover, once an individual person has experienced the totalist polarization of good and evil, he has great difficulty in regaining a more balanced inner sensitivity to the complexities of human morality. For there is no emotional bondage greater than that of the man whose entire guilt potential, neurotic and existential, has become the property of ideological totalists. The woke are ideological totalists. Is that getting into you clearly here? The milieu control that they've put on you the mystical manipulation, the demand for purity, the recycling campaign. This sounds really silly. That's part of the sustainability agenda. was made to make you feel like you need to do something to save the planet. And in fact, you may have a moral revulsion to the idea of throwing away something like a plastic bottle or an aluminum can. If you don't know if you have that, you should go get a can of something in an aluminum can and drink it and then try to throw the can away in a regular garbage can and see if you feel bad, see if you feel sick, feel if, see if you feel like you can't do it, and then you should do it anyway, because you have to break out of that. The sustainability cult is the same way. The same, they, they, you have to be the one that's going to make climate change go away by doing all of these weird demands like eating bugs and shrinking how much you travel basically to zero giving up your gas-powered car, recycling according to whatever dictates they have, you know, reuse, blah, 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 all the things that are normally there are, I mean, some of these are more complicated. Reusing things is often, is usually good when you can do it, um, as long as it's sanitary. But uh, they all have a moral valence as well. And 
There is no emotional bondage greater than that of the man whose entire guilt potential has become the property of ideological totalists. This is what the woke are trying to do. This is what social-emotional learning is geared to make your kids feel constantly about the sustainability, diversity, inclusion agendas, equity, etc. They want you to feel, they're your children to feel, incredible emotional bondage with their entire guilt potential wrapped up into their ideological totalism. Four, the cult of confession. Remember we were talking about DEI trainings and how very frequently they, well, I, not and how, because we didn't talk about that part yet. We were talking about DEI trainings. Well, very frequently at DEI trainings, what will happen is they will have people confess to their racism. They'll have everybody in the room. I've reached, I've been reached out to by so many people, especially in 2020 when it was new and they were just ham fisting these things everywhere, whether it was racial, whether it was sexual, whether it was gender based, they would have these sensitivity trainings at work and everybody, it was so alienating and polarizing because everybody in the whole workplace would have to go around and take their turn explaining how they're racist to say all of the black workers or that they were, they've always been homophobic to all of the gay employees. And it just created massively toxic working environments, massively poisonous working environments. Well, that pressure to confess, there you go. If you're manipulating guilt and shame and you're piling guilt and shame into the box of the possessions, I guess, of the totalizers, of the brainwashers, of the cult, then you're also going to develop around that occult of confession because that's where you're going to find the pathways to absolution from that guilt and shame through confession. And when you confess, what you're going to do is recommit to the people who are forgiving you, which is the cult itself. They'll probably give you homework. Well, you know, you're doing the work and that's fine, but you need to go read White Fragility. You need to go read this book about trans. You need to go read whatever it is. So he says, closely related to the demand for absolute purity is an obsession with personal confession. Confession is care. You must admit that you're a racist. You must admit that you're a transphobe. You must admit it. You must dig out every aspect of internalized transphobia, of hidden racism that you're covering up and pretending you don't have. Look at how they manipulate white women on that so much. Oh my goodness. Confession is carried beyond its ordinary religious, legal, and therapeutic expressions to the point of becoming a cult in itself. Again, this is Robin D'Angelo's business model. There is the demand that one confess to crimes one has not committed, like that you're a racist, or you harbor racist sentiment, or that you have transphobic sentiment, or that you wish for a genocide of fat people because you hope people lose weight and aren't obese. To sinfulness that is artificially induced in the name of a cure that is arbitrarily imposed. Doesn't that sound familiar? There is a demand that one confess to crimes one is not committed to sinfulness that is artificially induced in the name of a cure that is arbitrarily imposed. Such demands are made possible not only by the ubiquitous human tendencies toward guilt and shame, but also by the need to give expression to these tendencies. In totalist hands, confessions become a means of exploiting rather than offering solace for these vulnerabilities. We're not talking about a kindly priest who's helping you forgive yourself for your sins as you confess them because he wants you to feel solace over the vulnerabilities and to commit yourself to being a good person again. We're talking about 
a means of exploiting people in those vulnerabilities to get them to deepen themselves into the cult further. Again, this is Robin D'Angelo's whole business model. And on the Manichaean point, since I brought it up and I didn't think of it till just now, the good versus evil being so absolute. Remember what Kendi said, by the way? The only cure for racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. They're the only remedy, I should say. So we're remedying a disease, and it's systemic racism. And the only remedy for it is anti-racism under his terms. Right. Well, in D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, I know, first of all, that entire book is a book of this abuse because it is a, a Puritan humiliation, if you know what those are, as a technical term. If you go back and read in the 1500s, 1600s, the, the Puritans wrote these books called Humiliations. Uh, where they would humiliate themselves after believing that they had been saved because they had to drive out every aspect of, you know, potential sinfulness that they could feel within themselves in order to possibly reach a point of justification. Um, and it was a, pur a Puritan ritual. And what Robin D'Angelo wrote in the religion of anti-racism that she created or that she tapped into, she did not create, she wrote a Puritan humiliation is what she wrote. Um, and in that book, besides all of the white fragility, you disagree with anything, you're, you have white fragility, which is another symptom of racism, right? That's a mean, you're, you confess your racism and you don't, no matter what you do, you didn't do it right. All you can do is commit to doing more of doing whatever she says or whatever the organization says, because you didn't do it right. You, you confess your racism so that the, the gaze of seeing you as a racist would be lightened. But she has actually a chapter in that book, chapter 11, titled White Women's Tears. She talks about when you accuse a white woman of being a racist and she starts crying because it's emotionally bad. Those tears are actually a political weapon where she's actually using them to escape the pressure being put on her. She's crying so that people, especially white men, will want to rescue her. And sometimes black men, she says these things, will rescue her. You're hurting this poor woman and want to protect her from the cult, the cult totalization that she's laying down on them. That's how sadistic and exploitative and manipulative we're talking about with this cult. Remember, that book sold millions of dollars worth of royalties. It was a bestseller twice. I don't mean two weeks. In 2018, when it first came out, it was propelled to bestseller status. I'm sure that was perfectly organic. And then when, it, when, when George Floyd died in 2020, it blasted again. I heard or read that just in 2020, in the year following George Floyd's death, royalties, by the way, as somebody who's written books, are not generally very large in quantity, percentage-wise. There may be 10% of the book after the agent gets 15%, right? So the agent takes 15%, so you got 85%, and then you get 10% of that. That's usually how this works out, right? So your royalties are actually like 8 9% of the 6 7 8%, 9% of the book. Maybe if you have a fat deal, 10% of the book. And somehow, white fragility sold so much in the year after George Floyd died that Robin D'Angelo pocketed maybe as much as 2 to $3 million in royalties. That's probably at less than a dollar in royalties per book. That's how many that book sold. That's what this is, though, is a cult of confession in a totalist cult of anti-racism, woke, etc. Marxism. Marxism with identity characteristics or American characteristics. He says the totalist confession takes on a number of special meanings. 
And it's first, sorry, it is first a vehicle for the kind of personal purification which we have just discussed, a means of maintaining a perpetual inner emptying or psychological purge of impurity. This purging milieu enhances the totalist's hold upon existential guilt. Second, it is an act of symbolic self-surrender, the expression of the merging of the individual and the environment, or in this case, and the collective. So you're dialectically synthesizing the individual into the collective way of thinking, the cult way of thinking. Third, it is a means of maintaining an ethos of total exposure, a policy making public or at least known to the organization everything possible about the life experiences, thoughts, and passions of each individual, and especially those elements which might be regarded as derogatory. Now picture yourself in a school or in a workplace doing DEI, doing some DEI session or training or whatever it is, class, and you're confessing the ways that you've had racist thoughts in front of everybody, including management. It is a policy of making public, or at least uh, it's a policy of total exposure, of making public, or at least known to the organization, everything possible about the life experiences, thoughts, and passions of each individual, and especially those elements which might be regarded as derogatory. The assumption underlying total exposure, besides those which relate to the demand for purity, is the environment's claim to total ownership of each individual self within it. Private ownership of the mind and its products of imagination or of memory becomes highly immoral. You might have wrong thoughts. The accompanying rationale or rationalization is familiar to us. He gives the example of another person in the book, George Chen. He says, The milieu has attained such a perfect state of enlightenment because it's Gnostic cult. The milieu has attained such a perfect state of enlightenment that any individual retention of ideas or emotions has become anachronistic. The cult of confession can offer the individual person meaningful psychological satisfactions and the continuing opportunity for emotional catharsis and for relief of suppressed guilt feelings, especially insofar as these are associated with self-punitive tendencies to get pleasure from personal degradation. Again, the white women buying those products, the ones who are devotees of Robin D'Angelo, who I think actually does herself, get pleasure from this personal degradation. Now you have more understanding of them. Let me just, this is all abstract and we're talking about woke, but let me just pull you back for a minute in case you think that this, like if you thought Lifton's writing about woke or he's writing in merely in the abstract, remember these are his thoughts distilled from his experience interviewing People who were let out of the brainwashing prisons in China under Mao Zedong's communist regime in the 1950s during his first run of power. Just to point that out. More than this, because this, this is getting intense, this is where this is. This is why people are so drawn to this abusive system once they get pulled in a little bit. More than this, the sharing of confession enthusiasms can create an orgiastic sense of, quote, oneness of the most intense intimacy with fellow confessors and of the disillusion of self into the great flow of the movement. Now, I've heard this repeatedly. I've seen this in various group settings before, but I heard this repeatedly 
especially early on when the DEI wave crashed over our institutions and people in workplaces and schools, but especially workplaces, were reaching out to me and saying that they had to go through these things and there would be these forced confessions of racism or transphobia or homophobia or whatever. And the first person would say something they wouldn't say much. Everybody was shy. And as it started to go around the room, the confessions got bigger and bigger and more elaborate and more grotesque and more detailed and sometimes much more um, uh, crass, horrible, as if they were competing to have a better confession. But everybody going through a confession together, all in a sense, has bonded with one another because they went through a humiliating and vulnerable experience together and they gathered blackmail on all of their buddies. So now they're in it together and they bond. A great disillusion of the self into the great flow of the movement. And there is also, at least initially, the possibility of genuine self-revelation and self-betterment through the recognition that, quote, the thing that has been exposed is what I am, end quote. But as totalist pressures turn confession into recurrent command performances, oh, so now we really are in DEI training, unconscious bias training, the element of histrionic public display takes precedence over genuine inner experience. Each man becomes concerned with, their, with the effectiveness of his personal performance. And this performance sometimes comes to serve the function of evading the very emotions and ideas about which one feels most guilty, which, by the way, they work really hard to identify and then twist back on you in more criticism and struggle. Confirming the statement by one of Camus' characters that, quote, authors of confessions write especially to avoid confessing, to tell nothing of what they know, end quote. The difficulty, of course, he says, lies in the inevitable confusion which takes place between the actor's method and his separate personal reality, between the performer and the, quote, real me. So you start performing woke. So when Judith Butler writes about gender performativity, of course, she's projecting. In this sense, the cult of confession has effects quite the reverse of its ideal of total exposure. Rather than eliminating personal secrets, it increases and intensifies them. Isn't that going to increase the guilt cycle? Of course. In any situation, the personal secret has two important elements. First, guilty and shameful ideas which one wishes to suppress in order to prevent their becoming known by others or their becoming too prominent in one's own awareness. And second, representations of parts of oneself too precious to be expressed except when alone or when involved in special loving relationships formed around this shared secret world. Personal secrets are always maintained in opposition to inner pressures toward self-exposure. There's a contradiction, right? That's a nice tension. The totalist milieu makes contact with these inner pressures through its own obsession with the expose and the unmasking process. Isn't that the word they always use for unmasking bigotry? We're unmasking uh, different tendencies, attitudes, views. As a result, old secrets are revived and new ones proliferate. The latter frequently consist of resentments towards or doubts about the movement or else are related to aspects of identity still existing outside of the prescribed ideological sphere. Each person becomes caught up in a continuous conflict over which secrets to preserve and which to surrender, over ways to reveal lesser secrets in order to protect more important ones as a limited hangout, his own boundaries between the secret and the known, 
between the public and the private become blurred, and around one secret or a complex of secrets, there may be a complex of secrets. Sorry, there may be uh, there may revolve as we saw with who another of his examples that he gives a, a, a case studies in the book. There may revolve an ultimate inner struggle between resistance and self-surrender. Finally, the cult of confession makes it virtually impossible to attain a reasonable balance between worth and humility. So you're getting broken down. This is demoralization. This is bad psychological, moral, and social demoralization, as we've talked about. I did a bullet on that recently. The enthusiastic and aggressive confessor becomes like Camus' character, whose perpetual confession is his means of judging others. Quote, I practice the profession of penitent to be able to end up as a judge. The more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. End quote. The identity of the, quote, judge penitent thus becomes a vehicle for taking on some of the environment's arrogance and sense of omnipotence. This is a very heady feeling, by the way. I confess my racism, so now I can call you a racist, and I get to feel really good about having done it. Do you see that there are massive psychological benefits inside the cult, even though you're being broken down and destroyed? You don't feel that way. It's the methamphetamine of the masses. Yet, Even this shared omnipotence cannot protect him from the opposite, but not unrelated feelings of humiliation and weakness, feelings especially prevalent among those who remain the enforced penitent, uh, sorry, who remain more the enforced penitent than the all-powerful judge. You can also see how this is going to attract people like wounded narcissists and wound collectors, right? You can see how it's going to attract those kinds of psychopaths. Five. The sacred science. I'm telling you, this is a Gnostic cult. I'm just going to put that back out to you. The whole thing is a Gnostic cult. Just to be back to reality, what's he talking about? He's talking about Mao's prisoners in his thought reform prisons under Chinese communism. We're not talking about woke. We're not talking necessarily about cults in general, although he is generalizing to cults. The sacred science. The totalist milieu maintains an aura of sacredness around its basic dogma, holding it out as an ultimate moral vision for the ordering of human existence. This sacredness is evident in the prohibition, whether or not explicit, against the questioning of basic assumptions and in the, rever- and in the reverence which is demanded for the originators of the word, the present bearers of the word, and the word itself. Doesn't that make sense of the inability to criticize trans or to detransition, right? Doesn't that make sense of so many things? That if you don't want critical race theory taught, you're anti-black, or you just don't want history to actually be taught, you don't want kids to learn about slavery and what it was really about. That's the sacredness here. The sacred science of CRT. The sacred science of gender-affirming care. The sacred science of socialism and communism, which are the only true scientific study of history, according to Marx, right? While thus transcending ordinary concerns of logic, however, the milieu at the same time makes an exaggerated claim of airtight logic, of absolute, quote, scientific precision. That's because Gnostic cults are technocratic cults, typically. 
Thus, the ultimate moral vision becomes an ultimate science, right? That's what Marx literally said about socialism. That's what woke believes about itself. It needs other ways of knowing in because the current science is contaminated, which means on some level implicitly, it has a higher level science. Critical race theory is the higher level understanding of race and racism than your stupid, boring individual and institutional racism, right? Make sense? The ultimate moral vision becomes an ultimate science and the man who dares to criticize it or to harbor even unspoken alternative ideas becomes not only immoral and irreverent, but also, quote, unscientific. Lord, don't even start with the COVID side, but we certainly have all of this happening within the rampant Lysenkoism and just going against. I mean, what do they, they even say? I believe in the science. I believe in CRT, queer theory, blah, 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 and the science. In this way, the philosopher kings, and this reference to Plato is not arbitrary here because he called the prevailing mode of thought, which is that there is the secret inner knowledge that's higher. He called it scientia. That's where we get the word science, as a matter of fact. And the philosopher kings were the ones who had the capacity to get to that. Um, and a cult was organized around them, protected by a Praetorian guard that was sustained by a enlightened working base or of initiates, the inner school, outer school, uh, model there with the inner circle philosopher kings on top, and then the masses of the hoi polloi around uh, doing whatever mud people do. In this way, the philosopher kings of modern ideological totalism, it should just say modern Gnostic cults, reinforce their authority, but I should maybe I should be more specific. Modern technocratic Gnostic cults reinforce their authority by claiming to share in the rich and respected heritage of natural science. They have the science. Their figureheads like Fauci are the science. The assumption here is not so much that man can be God, oh it is, in actual Gnosticism and Hermeticism, but this is all derived from Hegel, who is an idealist, right? Marx tried to make it all material, but it doesn't matter. The assumption here is not so much that man can be God, but rather that man's ideas can be God. I would actually fix him here, and it should say, can become God. That an absolute science of ideas and implicitly an absolute science of man exists. You know, a system der Wissenschaft for Hegel, uh, Wissenschaft liegt Socialismus for Marx, scientific socialism, critical race theory imposing itself on science, what sustainability all these things, all these things, that an absolute science of ideas and implicitly an absolute science of man exists, or at least is very close to being attained, that this science can be combined with an equally absolute body of moral principles, and that the resulting doctrine is true for all men at all times. Although no ideology goes quite this far in overt statement, such assumptions are implicit in totalist practice. Now, I'm going to go ahead and go back to Mao for a second and contradict Lifton, which is sad because he was actually writing about Mao. Uh, he actually did overtly say this because he's talking in the same speech from 1957 that I've mentioned a few times now and I just recently read as a podcast, as you could have heard it there. He's talking about what are you going to do with the sciences. And he says that we have to open up free speech and free expression and free contest, 
contestation of ideas. And the idea, he says, the sciences and the arts can't develop that way or without that. I'm sorry. It can't develop outside of that kind of um, disagreement and, and, and kind of struggle, as he puts it, between ideas. Right. And then he lays out six political principles that are needed to decide right from wrong when there's competing ideas. How are people going to possibly decide what's correct and what's incorrect, what's right and what's wrong? That being intellectual and moral decision-making. And he gives six criteria. I'll read them very quickly, but then I'm going to make the point that I want to make. Words and de- One, words and deeds should help unite and not divide the people of all of our nationalities. Two, they should be beneficial and not harmful to socialist transformation and socialist construction. So they have to be explicitly pro-socialist. That's how you figure out if they're right or not. Three, they should help to consolidate and not undermine or weaken the people's democratic dictatorship. Four, they should help to consolidate and not undermine or weaken democratic centralism, which is the people's democratic dictatorship, uh, the concept that drives it. Five, they should help to strengthen and not shake off or weaken the leadership of the Communist Party. Six, they should be beneficial and not harmful to international socialist unity and the unity of the peace-loving people of the world. So those are his criteria, right? And then he says, naturally, to judge the validity of scientific theories or assess the aesthetic value of works of art, other criteria, other relevant criteria are needed. But these six political criteria are applicable to all activities in the arts and sciences. In a socialist country like ours, can there possibly be any useful scientific or artistic activity which runs counter to these political criteria? So actually, Mao said it explicitly. Mao actually said it explicitly. Since the distinction between the logical and the mystical is to begin with artificial... Oh, sorry, I skipped it. I skipped part. Uh, or is that I wanted to read? I was trying to jump to the middle of a paragraph. Um, I'll just do the whole paragraph again. The assumption here is not so much that man can be God, but rather that man's ideas can be God, and that an absolute science of ideas and implicitly an absolute science of man exists, or at least is very close to being attained the socialist thing Mao was talking about, that this science can be combined with an equally absolute body of moral principles, right? And that the resulting doctrine is true for all men at all times. And then Lifton incorrectly analyzing people he, who dealt with Mao, but having not heard Mao's 1957 speech, although no ideology goes quite this far in overt statements, such assumptions are implicit in totalistic practice. In fact, communism is that explicit. Mao was that explicit. All of science and art have what possible art and science could exist that doesn't hold to the totalistic ideals. He goes on at the level of the individual, the totalist sacred science can offer much comfort and security. It apply it. Sorry. It's appeal lies in its seeming unification of the mystical. It's a Gnostic cult unification of the mystical and the logical modes of experience in psychoanalytic terms of the primary and secondary thought processes. For within the framework of the sacred science, there is room for both careful step-by-step syllogism and sweeping non-rational, quote, insights. Yeah, glimpses of the divine mind. Gnosis. Since the distinction between the logical and the mystical is to begin with artificial and man-made, an opportunity for transcending it can create an extremely intense feeling of truth. He's describing gnosis. 
But the posture of unquestioning faith, both rationally and non-rationally derived, is not easy to sustain, especially if one discovers that the world of experience is not nearly as absolute as the sacred science claims it to be. Yet so strong a hold can the sacred science achieve over his mental processes that if one begins to feel himself attracted to ideas which either contradict or ignore it, he may become guilty and afraid. His quest for knowledge is consequently hampered, since in the name of science he's prevented from engaging in the receptive search for truth which characterizes the genuinely scientific approach. And his position is made more difficult by the absence in a totalist environment of any distinction between the sacred and the profane. There is no thought or action which cannot be related to the sacred science. To be sure, one can usually find areas of experience outside its immediate authority, but during periods of maximum totalist activity like thought reform, any such areas are cut off, and there is virtually no escape from the milieu's ever exp uh, expressing edict, sorry, ever pressing edicts and demands. Whatever combination of continued adherence, inner resistance, or compromise, coexistence, the in uh, sorry, I messed that one up. It's not or compromise. Whatever combination of continued ad adherence, inner resistance, or compromise, coexistence, the individual, it has to be compromising coexistence or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm just missing the grammar here. Uh, I'll try it. I'll just read the words as they are, and you're going to have to figure out how they go together. Whatever combination of continued adherence, inner resistance, or compromise, coexistence, the individual person adopts toward this blend of counterfeit science and backdoor religion, it represents another continuous pressure toward personal closure, toward avoiding rather than grappling with the kinds of knowledge and experience necessary for genuine self-expression and for creative development. Did you hear the key part in that in the middle? It's not the part I stumbled over. However you deal with this, right? However you deal with this, the person adopts toward this blend of counterfeit science and backdoor religion. This is basically the definition of a Gnostic cult. And that's what he says this combination ends up driving you. It represents another continuous pressure toward personal closure, toward avoiding rather than grappling with the kinds of knowledge and experience necessary for genuine self-expression and creative development. In other words, you get cut off from your own epistemic and moral resources and they get locked up in the cult. Now, sixth, this one gets even more exciting of the eight. Loading the language. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Cults load language. Cults play games with language. Communists may share your vocabulary, but they do not share your dictionary, as I've said many times, which is an old saying. I didn't make it up. The language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought-terminating cliché. I really wish he did more than just this. I think it focuses primarily on this. It's also filled with multiple definitions with what's it called? Polysemy or something like this. Polylogism, something like that. It, the words mean more than one thing at once, and we know that. And they're playing Mott and Bailey and dialectical games with the meanings of words. We're all very familiar. The diversity actually means everybody's a critical theorist. Inclusion actually means exclusion of things we don't like. Blah, 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 right? I wish he focused on that aspect too, but the thought-terminating cliche is such an important concept and it's going to be so familiar to you. The language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought-terminating cliche. This is an extremely important concept, so let me say the term again to get it into your head. 
thought terminating cliche. What's it break down to? A cliche is something, a slogan, a thing you repeat. It doesn't You don't even necessarily, you say it, it doesn't necessarily even have any meaning for you. And what is its purpose in this case? It is thought terminating. It makes thought stop. Do the work. Thought terminating cliche. You don't, you don't even have to know what the work is. You just say, check your privilege. Not even sure what privilege means, but you should check it. The most far-reaching and complex of human problems, I did it again, complex. The most far-reaching and complex of human problems are compressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive-sounding phrases, easily memorized and easily expressed. Black Lives Matter. Trans rights are human rights. Trans women are women. These become the start and finish of any ideological analysis. Hear that? The start and finish of any ideological analysis. In thought reform, for instance, the phrase bourgeois mentality, or racist, or um, internalized transphobia, or any of these concepts that function this way, right? The phrase bourgeois mentality is used to encompass and critically dismiss ordinarily troublesome concerns, like the quest for individual expression, the exploration of alternative ideas, and the search for perspective and balance in political judgments. See, it's white fragility, right? It's white supremacy. It's white supremacy culture. White supremacy culture. White supremacy culture. Do you get it? And in addition to their function as interpretive shortcuts, these cliches become what Richard Weaver has called, quote, ultimate terms. Either, quote, God terms, representative of ultimate good, or, quote, devil terms, representative of ultimate evil. Isn't this making sense of the world for you? In thought reform, quote, progress, quote, progressive, quote, liberation, quote, proletarian standpoints, and, quote, the dialectic of history, we could add, quote, anti-racist, quote, gender-affirming, we could add lots of things, right? fall into the former category, God terms, ultimate good. Capitalist, imperialist, exploiting classes and bourgeois, mentality, liberalism, morality, superstition, greed, of course, fall into the latter, devil terms. We could racists, sexist, transphobe, homophobe, right? Totalist language, then, is repetitiously centered on all-encompassing jargon, prematurely abstract, highly categorical, relentless judging, and to anyone but its most devoted advocate, deadly dull. And Lionel Trilling's, uh, sorry, and Lionel Trilling's phrase, quote, the language of non-thought. Right? It's Newspeak from 1984, is that right? To be sure, this kind of language exists to some degree within any cultural or organizational group, and all systems of belief depend upon it. It is, yeah, generally we all use cliches, and sometimes they're just meant to like stand in as heuristics or placeholders. It is in part an expression of unity and exclusiveness, aka a virtue signal. As Edward Sapir put it, quote, he talks like us, is equivalent to saying, quote, he is one of us. That's actually super powerful for people. The loading is much more extreme in ideological totalism, however, since the jargon expresses the claimed certitudes of the sacred science. 
Also involved is an underlying assumption that language, like all other human products, can be owned and operated by the movement. Doesn't that sound familiar in the woke? No compunctions are felt about manipulating or loading it in any fashion. The only consideration is its usefulness to the cause. For an individual person, the effect of the language of ideological totalism can be summed up in one word, constriction. He is, so to speak, linguistically deprived, and since language is so central to all human experiences, his, capacity for, his capacities for thinking and feeling are immensely narrowed. They become NPCs. This is what Hu meant when he said, quote, using the same pattern of words for so long, you feel chained, end quote. Actually, not everyone exposed feels chained, but in effect, everyone is profoundly confined by these verbal fetters. And uh, as in other aspects of totalism, this loading may provide an internal sense of the insight insecu- of insight insecurity, sorry, not the, this loading may provide an initial sense of insight insecurity, eventually followed by uneasiness. So you start to take on the vocabulary, you start to think it, think it helps you see the world better, it makes you feel safer around the people you're talking with because you can communicate to them. They say, We sound similar. And then all of a sudden you realize you're trapped. This uneasiness may result in a retreat into a rigid orthodoxy in which an individual shouts the ideological jargon all the louder in order to demonstrate his conformity, hide his own dilemma and his despair, and protect himself from the fear and guilt he would feel should he attempt to use words and phrases other than the correct ones. Now, I want you to be moved for a moment as I am moved and feel for the woke, because their life is hell. The point of a critical theory is to derange a human being in this way. The point of woke is to derange a human being in this way. And so these people are victims of something evil, and the narcissists that love it and the psychopaths that use it are... They're slave drivers, and they are using these people. But listen to this again. This uneasiness may result in a retreat. This is, you're going to hear, this is, this is your screaming woke person showing up at the Oklahoma State House just the other day from when I'm recording this about the trans issue. This uneasiness may result in a retreat into a rigid orthodoxy in which an individual shouts the ideological jargon all the louder in order to demonstrate his conformity, hide his own dilemma and his despair, and protect himself from the fear and guilt he would feel should he attempt to use words and phrases other than the correct ones. So you know the NPC memes where it shows the current thing? We all, whatever with the COVID, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. We all need the vaccine. Ivermectin is horse paste. You know, then it's like, Ukraine is good, you know, or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. A million, a sea of NPCs, and they're all shouting the same thing. That meme is pointing to this. This is what it's actually showing you. This is why it immediately resonates with you. Because you have the armies of people who have had their capacities for thinking and feeling immensely narrowed. Because using the same pattern of words for so long, you feel chained. And when you get chained in that way, you become that character in that meme. That's what's being described here, to demonstrate his own conformity, hide his own dilemma and his despair, and protect himself from the fear and guilt he would feel should he attempt to use the words and phrases 
other than the correct ones. And so, of course, they have a thought-terminating cliche they use to keep you from doing that. Conspiracy theorist. Don't listen to him. He's a conspiracy theorist. That's a conspiracy theory. That sounds conspiratorial. What does? Ideas, words, and phrases other than the correct ones. Right? That's bigoted. Or, if not that profoundly sad situation, or or else he may adopt a complex pattern of inner division and dutifully produce the expected cliches in public performances, while in his private moments he searches for more meaningful avenues of expression. Either way, his imagination becomes increasingly dissociated from his actual life experiences and may even tend to atrophy from disuse. It's the NPC phenomenon. But you also see the phenomenon where they will um, denounce you in public and and applaud you in private if somebody dares to stand up and speak out. Seven, doctrine over person. See, it's also class over person, but doctrine over person. This sterile language reflects another characteristic feature of ideological totalism, the subordination of human experience to the claims of doctrine. See, it's all about experience, 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 right? Lived experience. No, it's not. It's all about reinterpreting that which you've experienced in the world through doctrine so that it becomes, quote, lived experience. This primacy of doctrine over person is evident in the continual shift between experience itself and the highly abstract interpretation of such experience, which they've called lived experience, between genuine feelings and spurious cataloging of feelings. It has much to do with the peculiar aura of half-reality which a totalist environment seems, at least to the outsider, to possess. This tendency in the totalist approach to broad historical events was described in relationship to Chinese communism by John K. Fairbank and Mary C. Wright. Quote, Stock characters like capitalist imperialists from abroad, feudal and semi-feudal reaction at home, and the resistance and liberation movement of, quote, the people, enact a morality play. This melodrama seeks, uh, sorry, this melodrama sees aggression, injustice, exploitation, and humiliation engulf the Chinese people until salvation comes at last with communism. Mass revolutions require an historical myth as part of their black and white morality, and this is the ideological myth of one of the great revolutions of world history, end quote. It's just such a shame that for so long we've missed that what's happening here is a particular type of Gnostic cult happening at scale and running people often by the millions through the blender. The inspiriting force of such myths cannot be denied, nor can one ignore their capacity for mischief. For when the myth becomes fused with the totalist sacred science, what what would be a myth like that? Oh, the 1619 Project. For when the myth becomes fused with the totalist sacred science, the resulting, quote, logic can be so compelling and coercive that it simply replaces the realities of individual experience. Consequently, past historical events are retrospectively altered, wholly rewritten, or ignored to make them consistent with the doctrinal logic, the 1619 Project. This alteration becomes especially malignant when its distortions are imposed upon individual memory, as occurred in the false confessions extracted during thought reform, most graphically Father Lucas in his account. 
So they do it to you individually. They make you remember when you were a racist or when you did these horrible things. And I've heard confessions from DEI trainings that that they, you know, told stories from their past that they barely remembered or maybe exaggerated or, you know, made hyperbolic or whatever to draw the themes. The same doctrinal primacy. See, what that is is the interpretation. They grab a hold of you, for example, and they tell you that you're racist and they ask you to confess to your racism or in this case that you're a spy and you're supposed to confess to your spying, your espionage. And you start to concoct a story because they're not happy enough with your story until you keep adding details. And you start to concoct a story and eventually convince yourself that it's true. They gaslight you into a new uh, view of your past actions where you were super racist in the past or definitely against the Chinese people or uh, very capitalist and bourgeois in your attitudes, right? The same doctrinal primacy prevails in the totalist approach to changing people. The demand that character and identity be reshaped. Mao's word was remolding. You must constantly remold yourselves, he said. Not in accordance with one's special nature or potentialities. So it's not growth. The, the communists will trick you. Oh, what's wrong with getting better? What's wrong with self-improvement? Not in accordance, he says, with one's special nature or potentialities, but rather to fit the rigid contours of the doctrinal mold. You must remold yourself into socialism. Mao said that what is required, there's freedom, but there's every Chinese under, the, under his power has freedom, but freedom only exists under socialist discipline. That's what he said. Freedom and discipline are dialectical and they come together and there's only freedom. Just like with Rousseau, there's only freedom in the social contract by giving up some of your freedoms. Here we have, there's only freedom with socialist discipline under Mao. There's only freedom when we have justice within woke. So if you don't have a just mindset, a socially just mindset, there's no way we're going to have freedom. Right? The human is thus subjugated to the ahuman. And in this manner, the totalists, as Camus phrases it, quote, put an abstract idea above human life, even if they call it history, to which they themselves have submitted in advance and to which they will decide quite arbitrarily to submit everyone else as well, end quote. The underlying assumption is that the doctrine, including its mythological elements, is ultimately more valid, true, and real than is any aspect of actual human character or human experience. Doesn't that sound familiar to how the woke treat you if you disagree with them? You don't understand. You just want to keep being racist. You don't, uh, it's not really even happening. You're crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist. Thus, even when circumstances require that a totalist movement follow a course of action in conflict with or outside of the doctrine, there exists what Benjamin Schwartz has described as a, quote, will to orthodoxy, which requires an elaborate facade of new rationalization designed to demonstrate the unerring consistency of the doctrine and the unfailing foresight which it provides. You can think of maybe a gay nightclub shooter and so non-binary. He wasn't really non-binary, right? He was pretending. Or you could think of five black police officers beating a man in Memphis uh, to death. And they were motivated by the white supremacy of the institution of policing itself, which had impressed itself through the inversion of praxis into the black officers and led them to become racist, even though actually they were hired under a DEI initiative and never really should have been officers in the first place. 
You need some more examples. The public operation of this will to orthodoxy is seen in the party's explanation of the Hundred Flowers campaign. And that was covered in the previous podcast with Mao's speech, so I'm not going to do it again here, uh, except to remind you that what it, what it means was is that Mao said, that's actually from where I read you earlier about the arts and sciences, by the way, was in his expression of the Hundred Flowers campaign. Mao laid out this idea that a hundred flowers would bloom and a hundred ideas or schools of thought would contest with one another, and that was going to make a better thing because he thought, and historians seem to think this is the case, he thought that if that were the case, socialism and communism is so true it would just win out. After a year or two, this wasn't working. There was a lot of criticism. People were starting to actually have doubts because reality was impressing itself over the doctrine. And so he actually uses an excuse to have found out what people said during that period and rounded them all up and killed them or imprisoned them or sent them off to re-education camps or prisons or labor prisons, uh, anybody who, who denounced or criticized the regime, and he consolidated his power. Historians agree that he did not probably have that set up as a trap ahead of time, but it definitely got used in that way in the end. But anyway, but its greater importance lies in more hidden manifestations, particularly the totalists' pattern of imposing their doctrine-dominated remolding upon people in order to seek confirmation of and again dispel their own doubts about this same doctrine. Rather than modify the myth in accordance with experience, the will to orthodoxy requires instead that men be modified in order to reaffirm the myth. That's why they do re-education. That's why it's called remolding. That's why it's called brainwashing. That's why you're going to come out a new man. That's why, just like with the Gnostics, it's centered on the concept of death and rebirth. Thus, much of the prison thought reform, sorry, not the... Thus, much of prison thought reform was devoted to making the Westerner conform to the purge, sorry, pure image of the, quote, evil imperialist so that he could take his proper role in the communist morality play of Chinese history. See, in, in the woke, you're either a social justice warrior or you're a bigot on the wrong side of history, and you have to fall into your position in the morality play. The individual person who finds himself under such doctrine-dominated pressure to change is thrust into an intense struggle with his own sense of integrity, a struggle which takes place in relation to polarized feelings of sincerity and insincerity. In a totalist environment, absolute, quote, sincerity is demanded, and the major criterion for sincerity is likely to be one's degree of doctrinal compliance, both in regard to belief and to direction of personal change. So you can have a single conservative thought. Nothing any of your circle of friends or professional colleagues might identify as conservative. Nothing. You can have no such thing. Right? Does it make sense? So that's the sincerity. Yet there is always a possibility of retaining an alternative vision of sincerity and of reality, the capacity to imagine a different kind of existence and another form of sincere commitment, as did Grace Wu when she thought, quote, the world could not be like this. That's another one of his case studies. These alternative visions depend upon such things as the strength of the previous identity, the penetration of the milieu by outside ideas, and the retained capacity for eventual individual renewal. The totalist environment, however, counters such, quote, deviant tendencies with the accusation that they stem entirely from personal, quote, problems, thought problems, or ideological problems derived from 
uh, untoward earlier, quote, bourgeois influences or racist or white supremacist or transphobic or homophobic or whatever. Those are all bourgeois, right? So you're the one who's thinking wrong. You're the one who has problems with how you see things because you have a desire to be racist, sexist, etc. You just want to say the N-word. The outcome will largely depend upon how much genuine relevance the doctrine has for the individual emotional predicament. And even for those to whom it seems totally appealing, the exuberant sense of well-being it temporarily affords may be more a, quote, delusion of wholeness than an expression of true and lasting inner harmony. Eight. This one's intense. The dispensing of existence. So I just did these talks in Arizona. They're going around where I talked about the Gnosticism and the Hermeticism, right? And they're they're getting a lot of attention, so you can go find them. They're on the Sovereign Nations page. At some point soon, I will re-up them. I will, you know, put them out on, on new discourses so they're easier to find. But I did that for a Sovereign Nations conference, so Sovereign Nations has them, and they're on the Sovereign Nations page. But you can go look up the Mere Simulacrity Conference. And the first episode, or first talk I gave of the three that I gave at that conference was called The Negation of the Real. Now, well, I talked about Baudrillard and hyperreality and the idea of creating a simulation or uh, of reality, simulacra of experience, of truth, etc., because that's what you need to install occult doctrine over reality within the hyperreal space. Lots of fancy words. I called it The Negation of the Real. Now, point number eight in Lifton's description of ideological totalism is the dispensing of existence. Negation of the real, dispensing of existence, same thing. Now, in Gnosticism, the goal, of course, is that existence is a a prison. Being itself is a prison, so we have to get rid of it. That's liberation. That's emancipation. When Marx and Marcuse and Mao and all of the, the, the Marxists and the woke today talk about liberation or emancipation or freedom and justice... They're talking about the dispensing of existence, the negation of reality to serve their um, psychological uh, developmental disorder or whatever it is that they that led them to be where they are. The totalist environment, he tells us, draws a sharp line between those whose right to existence can be recognized and those who possess no such right. And if you remember the Mao podcast we just did, you hear that very explicitly, and he talks about how... Certain people on each side of the fence are treated very differently. The enemy will have his rights taken away from him. He will be punished. And the people will be dealt with with democratic persuasion, which by which he means struggle sessions, criticism, and eventually revolt, re- re- resulting in study that deepen you into the cult. And so like what I said in the podcast then is that this is a structure of a Gnostic cult. The agnostics or ignostics or whatever, the people who are not Gnostics, the people outside of the cult, don't have a soul. That's what Mao said. To not have correct political opinions is like not having a soul. Uh, in the Hermetic, in the Corpus Hermeticum, I could pull it out. It, they, they say that, that there are people without mind, without nose, without, and they're not like people. They're more like animals, and they're very different. But people with with mind get to act and be treated completely differently because they are people. And Mao's very clear that there have to be sharp lines of distinction drawn between who counts as the people and who don't, right? So again, the totalist environment draws a sharp line between those whose right to existence can be recognized and those who possess no such right. If you believe my thesis that this is what the woke is about and this is what the sustainable agenda is about, think about what that says. 
some the people who are in on the program have a right to exist, and the people who aren't possess no such right. In thought reform, as in Chinese communist practice generally, the world is divided into, quote, the people, defined as, quote, the working class, the peasant class, the petite bourgeoisie, and the national bourgeoisie, end quote, and, quote, the reactionaries, or, quote, lackeys of imperialism, defined as, quote, the landlord class, the bureaucratic capitalist class, and the Guomintang reactionaries and their henchmen, end quote. Mao Zedong makes the existential distinction between the two groups quite explicit. He says, quote, under the leadership of the working class and the Communist Party, these classes, the people, unite together to form their own state and elect their own government so as to carry out a dictatorship over the lackeys of imperialism. These two aspects, namely democracy among the people and dictatorship over the reactionaries, combine to form the people's democratic dictatorship. To the hostile classes, the state apparatus is the instrument of oppression. It is violent and not, quote, benevolent. Our benevolence applies only to the people and not to the reactionary acts of the reactionaries and the reactionary classes outside the people, end quote. That's not from the speech I just read from 1957 from Mao, but it's the same exact idea actually stated even more explicitly. So being, quote, outside the people, the reactionaries are presumably non-people. In fact, in the speech we just dealt with, and I read that part here, they don't have souls. If you don't have a soul, what are you? Well, there's nothing human about you, and therefore you're disposable for certain. Under conditions of ideological totalism in China, and elsewhere, non-people have often been put to death, their executioners then becoming guilty in Camus' phrase of, quote, crimes of logic. But the thought reform process is one means by which non-people are permitted, through a change in attitude and personal character, to make themselves over into people. Because it's a cult initiation process, they're trying to force you into nose, into mind, into gnosis. And if you accept it and become a socialist, there's a future for you. And they do this through not just the prison and thought reform, but they do it through social means as well. There's no job for you, but if you, do, if, if you don't get on board, but if you get on board, there's a bright future for you. Mao said that in the speech. There's lots of jobs. We're going to make every effort to, to, to make, you know, help them along, the intellectuals, the businessmen. But if they don't adopt the view, there's no future for them. If they don't adopt socialism, there's no future for them. So there's social and professional pressures put on you. Now in China, they have a social credit system that takes it even further, right? So he says, but the thought reform process is one means by which non-people are permitted through a change in attitude and personal character to make themselves over into people. The most literal example of such dispensing of existence and non-existence is to be found in the sentence given to certain political criminals. Execution in two years' time unless during that two-year period they have demonstrated genuine progress in their reform. You can picture the woke doing that. You can just easily imagine them doing this. You can travel again in two years' time. Or you'll never travel again or whatever uh, unless in two years' time you, you get on board with the sustainable agenda. You can picture these things so easily because this is the same thing. In the light of this existential policy, the two different pronunciations of the word people, 
and I'm not sure what he means by these, but I'm going to do them this way. People and people, people, I don't know. People and people, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know how he means it. P-E-E-P-U with an accent L. You can guess what that means. People and people adopted by the European group described in chapter 9 was more than just a practical maneuver. It was a symbolic way to cut through the loaded totalist language and restore the word to its general meaning, thereby breaking down the imposed distinction between people and non-people. So they used the word people to mean two different things by saying it slightly differently to signal which one they meant. And by creating their own language, by the way, they got around the imposed loaded language of the communists and maintained some of their sanity. Since the Westerners involved were themselves clearly non-people, theirs was an invention born of the negative status dispensed to them. So if you're not a person, so the, the communists could stand on a stage and say that they believe in every single thing that the American experiment stands for, life, liberty, and property, but they only apply to the people. You have a complete and inalienable right to life, liberty, and property so long as you are among the people. But the non-people, the reactionaries and the imperials, lackeys, or whoever, they have no such right. They have no rights. They'll have their rights taken away from them. So you can be killed. There's your right to life gone. You can be uh, locked up. You can imprisoned. There's your life right to liberty. You can have your possessions stolen from you or taken from you. There's your right to property. That's how they organize society. And I recently did a short podcast on the people trying to make very clear that you're only people under a totalizing Gnostic cult like communism if you subscribe to the totalizing Gnostic cult doctrine. If you have gnosis or can convince people at least that you have that gnosis, that you've been initiated and that you accept and are at least morally and socially committed to progressing in the cult, which eventually comes into study and getting intellectual commitment as well, and the capacity, therefore, to rationalize in a uh, cult-sophisticated way. Are not men presumptuous, he asks, to appoint themselves the dispensers of human existence? Surely, this is a flagrant expression of what the Greeks called hubris, of arrogant man making himself God. Of course it is, because they're Gnostic cults. Yet one underlying assumption makes this arrogance mandatory. The conviction that there is just one path to true existence, just one valid mode of being, and that all others are perforce invalid and false. Totalists thus feel themselves compelled to destroy all possibilities of false existence as a means of furthering the great plan of true existence to which they are committed. P.S. That plan is the Gnosis. Indeed, Mao's words suggest that all of thought reform can... That's, thought reform just means giving you the... forcing you into Gnosis. Mao's words suggest that all of thought reform can be viewed as a way to eradicate such allegedly false modes of existence, not only among the non-people within whom they supposedly originate, but also among legitimate people allegedly contaminated by them. He says, quote, The function of the people's state is to protect the people. It's always about safety, guys. It's always about safety. It's for your safety. Public health, safety. Patriot Act, safety. Misinformation censorship, disinformation censorship, the woke skewing and the chat GPT program, for your safety. 
what they have to do in the schools for the kids' mental health and safety. The function of the people's state is to protect the people. Only where there is the people state is it possible for the people to use democratic methods or a nationwide and all-round scale to educate and reform themselves, to free themselves from the influence of reactionaries at home and abroad, to unlearn the bad habits and ideas acquired from the old society and not let themselves travel on the erroneous path pointed out by the reactionaries, but to continue to advance and develop toward a socialist and communist society, accomplishing the historic mission of completely eliminating classes and advancing toward a universal fraternity. He should just said justice, because that's where it's it's gone. But that's Mao's quote. That's a different speech, but he said the same thing in the other speech. Go back and listen to that podcast. Not word for word, same exact theme. The people's dictatorship is the only way to protect the people, to give them the opportunity to flourish. And so part of its function is to smash all resistance, to destroy all uh, all of the enemy, to protect it from the enemy. We're just trying to keep you safe. That's a quote. What is that quote from? Back in 2018, in February 2018, so five years ago, I went to Portland with um, Helen, Peter, and Mike Nana, and we were making the the video actually that that uh this is the day before i think the video where we um announced that the dog park grievance studies paper had been accepted and we had an event and it was if i remember correctly on stage peter was on stage of course and um Hel- helen was on stage Heather Hying was on stage, and James Damore from Google was on stage. I was out there originally invited to be on stage and was not allowed to be because there would be too many white men on the stage, is what we were informed. It would look bad. It would be bad optics to to have me up there, too. So I didn't, and Peter told me I should just tell him I'm gay, and I said no. And so I sat in the second row of the audience, and in the middle of this presentation, there was a disturbance. A young woman with purple hair dressed all in black, who's probably a member of some kind of Antifa, if I remember correctly, she's actually some kind of petty criminal of that sort, rushed forward, ripped the sound wires out of their jacks in the floor, damaging the sound equipment. Peter and Heather Hying stood up and spoke loudly to the room, to this giant auditorium with no microphone, Peter being much better than Helen or Heather, I mean, until the sound got fixed. A few minutes, la- a minute or two later, Heather tried to speak into it, and then eventually her microphone gets turned back on. And this woman goes running out of the back, and the police catch her. And then there's a video of this, actually, Mike Nana put out with featuring Helen um, that you can find from around late 2018, summer 2018. And you can actually see this happen. And this purple-haired girl... Uh, is being detained by this super buff, like six foot three black police officer wearing, you know, bulletproof vest, got a stick and a gun, got a taser. This dude, like benching 300 plus, like just jacked, right? This guy is in great shape, huge, muscular, not fat in any way, black dude, as a police as, and a police officer, you're like fully geared out, right? And he's trying to keep her sitting still. She's throwing a fit and it's on camera. Mike actually, Nana actually 
captured on camera, and she yells up at this black man, and I shit you not, I'm just trying to keep you safe from the ideas that were being expressed in the room, right? It's always about that. It's always about that. Always about safety. Always about safety from ideas outside the cult. I'm just trying to keep you safe. Story time's over. For the individual, Lifton tells us, the polar emotional conflict is the ultimate existential one of, quote, being versus nothingness. He is likely to be drawn into a conversion experience, which he sees as the only means of attaining a path of existence for the future. The totalist environment, even when it does not resort to physical abuse, it's very emotionally and mentally abusive and manipulative. Let's just be very clear about that. Thus stimulates in everyone a fear of extinction or annihilation, much like the basic fear experienced by Western prisoners. A person can overcome this fear and find, quote, confirmation, not in his individual relationships, but only from the font of all existence, the totalist organization, the cult. Existence comes, so you are going to be destroyed, but we can renew you in the cult. That's the message. Existence comes to depend upon creed, I believe, therefore I am. Upon submission, I obey, therefore I am. And beyond these, upon a sense of total merger with the ideological movement. I am a socialist with correct political opinions, therefore I have a soul, we might say. Ultimately, of course, one compromises and combines the totalist quote, confirmation with independent elements of personal identity, but one is ever made aware that should he stray too far along this, quote, erroneous path, his right to existence may be withdrawn. This is actually what Paulo Freire refers to as coherence of the person with the doctrine that he's preaching, his own Gnostic thing. This is, of course, the same core thing as in Gnosis. You are going to be annihilated unless you realize the truth and escape the prison of being, in which case you escape annihilation. How? By joining the cult, by attaining and adhering to Gnosis, which the cult leaders in the cases like this are pushing. The more clearly an environment expresses these eight psychological themes, so we're now done with them and this is a summary to end the chapter, the greater its resemblance to ideological totalism. Well, the woke pretty well damn nails all eight of them super hard, doesn't it? Ideological totalism, meaning Gnostic cult. And the more it utilizes such totalist devices to change people, the greater its resemblance to thought reform or brainwashing. That's why I keep trying to tell you. That's the environment in the schools that they're using SEL to foster directly into psychological and emotional manipulation. That's what you experience in DEI training. I was reading this book on an airplane. I know I've told this story before, and I was horrified by what I was reading, like some of the first times I ever read Nazi stuff, and just horrified. And it's just, you know, I had to close it. I had to put it down. I couldn't look at it. And I look out the window. We're coming in close to landing. I'm looking out at the city. We're coming down over. Turned out I was coming home. And I'm looking out, and I just think, this can't happen here. This can't happen in America. And then it hit me. It already is. It already is. This is DEI training, and this is SEL. And it hit me. This is already happening. This is the social environment that those practices, DEI training and adherence and, and unconscious bias training and adherence and check your privilege and SEL and all of the crap in the schools, 
This is the environment that it creates. This is this. What is happening in America is Maoist cultural revolution with American characteristics. And I stared out the window with a thousand yard stare, a thousand year stare, maybe, until we landed. And I decided that this was one of the most important books that had to be communicated. Understanding how and why it works this way is one of the most important things that can be communicated right now. And um, eventually even studying Mao and understanding more clearly what was on the other side of this is going to be necessary. He says, but facile comparisons can be misleading, so don't freak out too much. No milieu ever achieves complete totalism. Well, the goal actually, let me just break some bad news to you. The goal with the social credit system and the algorithms is in fact to do exactly that. Lifton writing this in 1961 did not have the ability to predict everybody having a cell phone or maybe even Neuralink brain implants. He did not have the ability to predict the idea that we all have a smartphone and that a active social credit system that contours your every moment of experience with devices that can listen to you at all times would be everywhere always. He could, even with books like 1984, he already said that that didn't seem as realistic. He couldn't imagine. No Milou ever achieves complete totalism. God, I pray he's right, but I will make, let me break your last barrier. That's the goal. Complete totalism through the algorithm, through the social emotional learning, not just in every subject at school for your poor kids, but infused into the community through the whole school whole community, whole child whisk model pushed by the CDC, infused into every aspect of life, and then enforced through social credit systems in terms of your environmental, social, and governance behavior that, and in the competencies that you learn in the social emotional learning environment, maybe it's math competency or computer programming or, you know, C++ or some specific one, but maybe it's LGBTQ+. Maybe it's anti-racism. Maybe it's sustainability. Maybe it's SDG 5, which is gender equality. That's the goal. I pray he's right. No milieu, he says, ever achieves complete totalism, and many relatively moderate environments show some signs of it. Moreover, totalism tends to be recurrent rather than continuous. In China, for instance, its fullest expression occurs during the thought reform. It is less apparent during lulls in thought reform, although it is by no means absent. And like, well, let me pause. We'll do that part again uh, in a second. Totalism, uh, sorry. Um, no Milu ever achieves complete totalism in many relatively moderate environments. Shows some signs of it. Moreover, totalism tends to be recurrent rather than continuous. Its fullest expression occurs during thought reform. It is less apparent in lulls during thought reform, although it is by no means absent. Robert Lifton could not envision in 1961 social credit systems. You must understand how powerful those are going to be able to be. This is where when I start talking about the competency-based competency direction in education, stage one is your kid doesn't graduate high school or go to college unless he has the necessary competencies. Are those math or reading? Eh, maybe. Are they LGBTQ plus and anti-racism? Probably. Sustainability? Definitely in the direction that they're going. So you don't even get to graduate high school. doesn't matter if you homeschool. This is why I keep telling you, you will brainwash your own kid because they have no future if you don't. 
you decide to pull them out of the schools to protect them and homeschool them, they have no future. The tyranny of the future will be opt-in. They're going to tell you it's this easy to get in, just get your credits. Those credits they're already saying, these competencies that they're trying to get into the kids can be used as currency. And they will be used as a basis for currency. And so that goes further. It's no longer just can you get in, graduate high school or go to college because of your competencies. It's can you get this job or that. Or in fact, can you even participate in society? You're con- that's what a social credit system does. You don't have the correct competencies. You're not topped up on your LGBTQ plus and gender equality scores. Your corporate equality index, your individual equality index score is below 100. No plane tickets for you. It wouldn't be sustainable if too many people were flying, so you can't possibly have a plane ticket unless your score is perfect. So you're going to opt in, and you're going to homeschool your kid into the competencies. You will brainwash your own kid because the game is to make the system such that there's no way to participate without it. Do you understand where this is going? This is so important to grasp. It's not as simple as Lifton's unfortunately describing because he couldn't imagine a social credit system. He couldn't imagine a social credit system based on social, environmental, and self-governance competencies that are attached to each individual as as a piece of digital evidence that they should be allowed to participate in society. That's where it goes. That's where the totalism goes. There are no lulls. Thought reform under a social credit system is constant. It's not in the water, it is the water in which people live, or fish, I guess, is the, is the metaphor. Now I can come back to what he says. And like the, quote, enthusiasm with which it is often associated, totalism is more apt to be present during the early phases of mass movements than later. Communist China in the 1950s was generally more totalist than Soviet Russia. But if totalism has at any time been prominent in a movement, there is always the possibility of its reappearance, even after long periods of relative moderation. In the program, this is like the back to the future moment where the DeLorean wheels fold up and roads where we're going, we don't need roads. Under a complete algorithm, AI algorithm driven social credit system, it never goes away. There are no lulls. There are no breaks. There are no respites. There are no hiding places. It never goes away. That's the 2030 to 2050 agenda. That's what we're up against. That's why I say school choice. Yeah, go ahead. Have school choice. Fine. Whatever. Because you're going to brainwash your own kid and every school is going to do it because the competencies are going to be their, their literal key to society. If they were to get their way, they being the World Economic Forum, United Nations, whatever the hell the regime is, if they were to get their way, you will have an app on your phone that's connected to your personal identity. Maybe it's not even on your phone. We'll assume phones. And it will have a passport uh, aspect to it. And that passport will be something you can scan. And it will determine when at the point of sale or at the point of activity or at the point of entrance, you want to go into the You want to go into the home improvement store? You want to go shop at Lowe's? You can't get in. You want to shop at Whole Foods, the nice grocery store? You can't get in unless your score or set of scores or certain scores are high enough. Do you get it? You can't get into, you want to buy meat? Maybe some people are still allowed to buy meat. You can't buy any meat 
unless all your scores are perfect and you haven't bought very much. How come? Because you can't even get into the meat department in the store because it's behind a gateway. And to get through the gateway, you have to scan your code and or your ID, and it will open the door for you. And if you, you don't count, you don't go. That's how far that can go. The social credit system means the thought reform process is constant. It's everywhere. It's socially enforced. In China, you can catch bad social credit by being around people with bad social credit, bad financial credit, people who are in trouble in some way or dissidents or getting together too many people too many times too often. Your social credit score can go down. The thought reform becomes permanent and pervasive and becomes the key to the existence in society. So yeah, school choice, go ahead. Every school, including homeschools, will be geared toward one purpose and one purpose only. Everybody who wants to participate in the future society is going to have to have all the competencies. So if you want to do something useful, you need to attack the competency-based method. You need to prevent a social credit system from being built around it for individuals. Much more important. I know your kids are suffering. Much more important. Much harder. But nobody's talking about it. Nobody understands what's coming. The thought reform will be pervasive, total, unrelenting, everywhere, always. You must understand that. It's so much different. Back to Lifton. Back to good times. Then, too, some environments come perilously close to totalism, but at the same time, because he's trying to make sure that we don't just say, oh, woke is totalist. No, it, don't worry, it is. Some environments come perilously close to totalism, but at the same time keep alternative path op paths open. This combination can offer unusual opportunities for achieving intellectual and emotional depth. And even the most full-blown totalist milieu can provide, more or less despite itself, a valuable and enlarging life experience if the man exposed has both the opportunity to leave the extreme environment and the inner capacity to absorb and make inner use of the totalist pressures as did a couple of his examples. Now, I just told you, under the social credit system, nobody has the opportunity to leave the extreme environment except to completely ostracize themselves from society. You know how like when I told you with the woke, what they realized is the problem of reproduction and education, everything in woke is, is projection, right? Iron law woke projection never misses. So in all those education podcasts, I told you that they have this problem of reproduction and critical pedagogy. Paolo Ferreri becomes relevant because he solves the problem of reproduction by stealing education. That's the book, Marxification of Education, that I wrote. You can read it. Okay. The Iron Law of Oak Projection never misses. So what they're saying is, well, the problem of reproduction is that kids go to school to learn how to participate in the existing society. And thus that reproduces the existing society. Now, that's them problematizing it, but imagine what that tells you. It's always a confession by projection. They say that's how education actually works, which means that's how they think education actually works, which means when they're in charge of education, that's what education will do because that's what they think education is. Does that make sense to you? That's why it's iron law of woke projection. That's why it never misses. So what they're building is an educational system that's building out the competency model, the social credit model, without which you can't participate in society. So they're building in the problem of reproduction against anything that might try to challenge or depose them. But this time with AI, algorithms, and digital technology that can actually lock you out of society. A black market is going to be much harder to maintain under that circumstance than you might think. 
Also, he tells us, ideological totalism may offer a man an intense peak experience, a sense of transcending all that is ordinary and prosaic, of freeing himself from the encumbrances of human ambivalence, of entering a sphere of truth, reality, trust, and sincerity beyond any he has ever known or even imagined. You know why? Because it's a Gnostic cult. But these peak experiences, he tells us, are the result, sorry, but these peak experiences, he tells us, they result, again, the grammar is not right. They, re, they result as they are, they result as they are, it's got to be they. But these peak experiences, the result as they are of, ex, uh, I'm butchering this, I'm sorry. I'm just going to read the words as they are, because he's right. But these peak experiences, the result as they are of external pressure, distortion, and threat, carry a great potential for rebound and for equally intense opposition to the very things which initially seem so liberating. Such imposed peak experiences, isn't that a glorious phrase for the ecstasy that you feel from the moral superiority and narcissism you get to indulge in and woke? Imposed peak experiences. You felt free. You achieved gnosis. You merged with the unity of the cult. You had the desire for unity, and through criticism, you achieved unity in Maoist language. Such imposed peak experiences, as contrasted with those more freely and privately arrived at by great religious leaders and mystics, are essentially experiences of personal closure. Rather than stimulating greater receptivity and, quote, openness to the world, they encourage a backward step into some form of embeddedness, a retreat into doctrinal and organizational exclusiveness, and into all-or-nothing emotional patterns more characteristic, at least at this stage of human history, of the child than of the individuated adult. That's exactly what we see with Woke. And if no peak experience occurs, ideological totalism does uh, even greater violence to the human potential. It ev- so the best thing you can be said is it gives you a great feeling when you get high off of it by becoming, you know, having your Gnostic experience or getting on your moral high horse. That's the best you can say about it. And that, it turns out to be a disaster for you. It's a trap. But then he says, if that doesn't occur, it does even greater violence to the human potential. It evokes destructive emotions produces intellectual and psychological constrictions, and deprives men of all that is most subtle and imaginative under the false promise of eliminating those very imperfections and ambivalences which help to define the human condition. This exactly, when when Marx says that his program is humanizing and that it fights the dehumanization and estrangement and alienation, it's exactly Iron Law Vogue Projection. It's exactly the opposite. He dehumanizes. He alienates. He exploits. He estranges from your own humanity. This combination of personal closure, self-destructiveness, and hostility toward outsiders leads to the dangerous group excesses so characteristic of ideological totalism in any form. It also mobilizes extremist tendencies and those outsiders under attack, thus creating a vicious circle of totalism. Did you hear that? There's your Christian nationalist movement. There it is. There's reaction. There's return with a, with a V in the place of the U. Did you hear that, though? It also mobilizes extremist tendencies in those outsiders under attack, which creates a vicious circle of totalism. You've entered, the reactionaries have entered the dialectic. They fuel the dialectic. The Christian, Christian nationalist movement is an obvious trap, but it's fueling the dialectic. 
we're going to stand strong and put down our foot. No, you're not. You're just actually becoming, you're just showing extremist tendencies and those outsiders under attack. Why do you think they care so damn much about the Proud Boys? Have you ever met a Proud Boy? Like probably like three or zero or none? You don't even know any? Like what is it? Because they're the so-called extremist tendency of the outsiders under attack by Antifa. So they're the foil that gives Antifa all of its engine and energy and is the DOJ is this FBI focusing on Antifa? No. Is, is, is the Department of Homeland Security concerned about Antifa? No, they're concerned about the Proud Boys. Do you not understand how this works? Do you not see what's happening around you? You must get this. The extremist reaction is not a viable action. The extremist reaction is part of the dialectic. It's how they're going to consume even more. At worst, it just becomes fodder, like Proud Boys versus Antifa, to keep the to keep the engine running. At probably, did I call that at worst? That's at best. At worst, what happens is one of these movements succeeds, does away with the constitutional protections because it needs them to stamp out the woke. It needs to get rid of them. It needs to get rid of the First Amendment so we can silence woke people. And then when the woke come back and get power three years later, they don't have a First Amendment in the way anymore. This has happened again and again in South America. Again and again. Suckers. What is the source of ideological totalism? How do these extremist emotional patterns originate? These questions raise the most crucial and the most difficult of human problems. Behind ideological totalism lies the ever-present human quest for the omnipotent guide, for the supernatural force, pol uh, political party, philosophical ideas, great leader, or precise science that will bring ultimate solidarity to all men and eliminate the terror of death and nothingness. So that's the draw. That's the pull. That's why people get into it. As to the former point about the reaction, remember, Beautiful Trouble, their, their strategy guide, their updated rules for radicals, openly tells you that as part of their strategy is that your, re, the, your opponent, your target's reaction is the real action. So don't react the way they want you to. If they're trying to provoke you into extremist action, don't do it. If they're trying to do, I don't know, a satanic looking goofball performance at the Grammys, and then every evangelical Christian goes berserk and says, we need a resurgence of Christian Christianity and Christian nationalism in the country. Guess what? They got you. They got you. Didn't they? They got you. You're doing their work for them. They got you. Got you. Very important to understand. But why are people drawn to it? Because it gives them as uh, explained where the draw to Hegel is it gives people the image of life under a perfect day, which is a great dystopian novel about equity called This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. Um, but it's the ever-present human quest for the omnipotent guide. The Gnostic, who pretends convincingly to be that, is what this is all about. This quest is evident in the mythologies, religions, and histories of all nations, as well as in every individual life. So that means it's it's a tendency and interest that every society has, every individual craves, and thus there are healthy and pathological ways of dealing with it. And these cults, these totalizing cults, are particularly pathological ways of dealing with it. The degree of individual totalism involved depends greatly upon factors in one's personal history. Early lack of trust, extreme environmental chaos. You know, he's describing things that cause personality disorders, isn't he? Uh, total domination by a parent or parent representative, intolerable burdens of guilt and severe crises of identity. Oh, personality disorders. Thus, 
An early sense of confusion and dislocation or an early experience of unusually intense family milieu control can produce later a complete intolerance for confusion and dislocation and a longing for some of the reinstatement of milieu control. But these things are in some measure part of every childhood experience and therefore the potential for totalism is a continuum from which no one entirely escapes and uh, in relationship to which no two people are exactly the same. It may be the capacity for totalism is most fundamentally a product of human childhood itself or of the prolonged period of helplessness and dependency through which each of us must pass. Limited as he is, the infant has no choice but to imbue his first nurturing authorities, his parents, with an exaggerated omnipotence until the time he himself is capable of some degree of independent action and judgment. And even as he develops into the child and the adolescent, he continues to require many of the all-or-none polarities of totalism as terms with which to define his intellectual, emotional, and moral worlds. Have you noticed our tendency when we try to describe the woke or even the reaction to the woke? That it's just like arguing with teenagers or toddlers or that they're moral infants or that they're emotional infants or that they're emotionally stunted or they have personality disorders, which are like a form of developmental disorder. There's a reason. That's where totalism flourishes. That's what critical theories exist to induce. That's what social emotional learning is meant to actually produce in your children, personality disorders. Under favorable circumstances, that is when family and culture encourage individuation, not collectivism, guys. These requirements can be replaced by more flexible and moderate tendencies, but they never entirely disappear. During adult life, individual totalism takes on new contours as it becomes associated with new ideological interests. It may become part of the configuration of personal emotions, messianic ideas, and organized mass movement, which I have described as ideological totalism. When it does, we cannot speak of it simply as a form of regression. It is partly this, but it is also something more, a new form of adult embeddedness. Of I didn't say that well. A new form of adult embeddedness, originating in patterns of security-seeking carried over from childhood, but with qualities of ideas and aspirations that are specifically adult. During periods of cultural crisis and of rapid historical change, the totalist quest for the omnipotent guide leads men to seek to become that guide. Totalism, then, to close the chapter, he says, is a widespread phenomenon, but it is not the only approach to re-education. We can best use our knowledge of it by applying its criteria for to familiar processes in our own cultural tradition in our own country. That's the end of the chapter. I think the chapter ends kind of weak, but that wasn't the point. The next chapter is approaches to re-education. That's not what we're here to talk about, so we're not going to. So thank you for going on this long journey with me again. We're, we've dived into Mao. We've seen Mao. I've characterized what Mao lays out as quite explicitly a Gnostic cult of Maoist socialism and communism. I say that the parallels to Woker so obvious. That's a previous podcast. This podcast, I go through Lifton's eight criteria of thought reform environments. And whether you want to apply it to Mao, whether you want to apply it to the woke, whether you want to apply it to Gnostic cults in general, you're basically not missing a single point, especially with the woke, especially with the direction we're headed towards social credit under things like sustainability and uh, social justice inclusion as kind of the, the benchmarks for those things. So the woke is a totalist, an ideological totalist movement. In other words, it is a Gnostic cult. It is 
virtually identical to Maoism, which is being described here. Let's pull back to that fact. What Lifton was deriving these results from was his study of people who were being brainwashed in Mao's communist prisons. And this is, we have to be very realistic about this. This is what we're dealing with here in the United States today, here throughout the West today. This is what we're dealing with. If we keep running away from that conclusion or trying to rationalize that conclusion or get very smart to that conclusion or react stupidly to that conclusion, then we're only perpetuating the cycle. This is a very important thing to comprehend and to start crafting solutions in terms of understanding where traps are being laid, understanding why people are acting the way they are, how we might break them free, what are some necessary preconditions for that, uh, like turning off the TV. Uh, you're not going to, if somebody's still watching CNN, you're not going to save them unless CNN's somehow red pilling them because it's so glaring and they're just gonna addicted to the process. We have to understand this accurately in order to get it. And what, what's happening in the United States is a Maoist cultural revolution with American characteristics. There's no way around it. We heard that with the Mao podcast. We hear that with Lifton's characterization of what the thought reform milieu looks like under the Maoist circumstance. And it's not easy. It's effortless. It's past effortless to plug the woke into every aspect of this. What do I mean by it's past effortless? And it's the last thing I'll say. It's harder not to see the woke in what I just read than it is to figure out how to put the woke in it. It's very obvious once the you know the curtain has been pulled back. So I hope I've helped you in pulling the curtain back. I hope we understand better what we're dealing with. And I hope we can start making smart decisions going forward about how we're going to um, understand and stop this thing. Because we know what it is and we know where it ends. Mao's speech, like I said in the last podcast, was on the preface to the great leap forward, which was the greatest catastrophe maybe in human history as far as a single program goes. And we're now at the precipice in the narrow window of opportunity for the Great Reset, which is going to be the similar kind of disaster to transform our entire system into the new sustainable and inclusive future that's premised on all of this ideological totalism that we can't hide from any longer. Thanks for going on the journey with me. We'll catch you for the next one. 